The first lesson in economics is scarcity. The first lesson in politics is to disregard the first law of economics. The government seems to be asleep at the wheel as far as, as, as the monster they've created. 23 of Australia's 41 universities have formally pledged support for The Voice. So a massive amount of young people going to universities every day where they are being bombarded with pro-voice messaging and material. We have to get out of bed every day knowing that we will be bombarded by the hallucinatory illusions of the victimhood industrial complex. Hello and welcome to Parting Shots, the ADH news podcast from my esteemed colleague Nick Cater and me, Fred Paul. And Nick, what a week it's been. We've seen Big Pharma get a dose of their own medicine at a Senate inquiry, <laughs> which should have been uh, should have boosted the case for a royal commission into the into the tragic debacle that was the COVID lockdowns and the vaccine mandates. But predictably, the Greens and Labor made sure that anything like that will never see daylight. We also saw former Prime Minister Tony Abbott make the incisive statement and observation that the voice to Parliament referendum is actually a referendum about Australia. And the Matildas got through to the quarterfinals of the World Cup with a decisive 2-0 two win, two win over Denmark, unleashing Matilda mania on the nation. And it was a week also that Prime Minister Anthony Albanese, Nick, would probably prefer to forget because his beloved voice to Parliament now looks about as flat as a kangaroo squashed by an 18-wheeler taking a 75-metre windmill blade <laughs> to some formerly beautiful part of the Australian bush that is now earmarked for wind farming. And you're the expert on that, Nick. And, and thanks for the, the analogy of the week, Fred. I think without a doubt, the analogy of the week. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. We'll also later be talking about uh, why young Australians are gullible enough to fall for Albo's voice for the... Uh, voice message. But first, Nick, uh, let's talk about our lessons of the week. What was yours, old son? Uh, my lesson of the week was that um, I was entirely mistaken about the reasons why I, I'm intending to vote no for the voice. Uh, you know, I thought it was because uh, it, it's uh, it's completely against the Australian spirit of egalitarianism, the idea that we're all equal, all equal citizens. But uh, but no, I, I, and thanks to Mike Carlton for putting me right, there are four reasons for voting for The Voice, apparently, or voting against The Voice. The no voters fall into four camps. Um, we must be in one of them. You can yeah. help me to explain one. Number one, the Duttonistas, who don't give a F about the country but just want to inflict defeat on Albo. Um, well, I've plead guilty to that one. <laughs> Two, racists. Oh. Well, he was pretty quick to pull that one out of mm, the pack. Mm, they, number they two, we, yeah. so I thought it might come last. But anyway, number two, racist. Number three, the jealous and bitter kicking down. Um, and number four, F-wits. Ah. There's only four reasons. You can't vote out of wow. out of principle or conviction that, that it's very important that we well, don't, don't treat people according to race. Yeah, well... I mean, his logic is irrefutable and his style and grace is, uh, as usual... Lacking. <laughs> lacking. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the real question is, Nick, I mean, I, I'll, I'll claim number four. I'm, I'm an F-wit, so what... Which can Yeah, do I can't find? argue with that one. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose I'd better take the racist one, eh? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm, okay. I'm racist because I refuse to put people in racial categories. That makes one a racist these days. <laughs> Goodness well, knows I'm going to be I'm, my the grab that I'm going to use from my show later in, later in the podcast will be all about that uh, the conundrum that we are facing every day these days about uh, the the unreal uh, assertions that we are bombarded with every day, and we'll come back to that. We might give mm. Mike another. Uh, another spin when we get to that. Very so, wise man, yeah. Mike Carlton. <laughs> he is. Uh, not, not angry at all. No, um, no, never angry. Always full of compassion. <laughs> My lesson of the week is actually about pubs because I visited an old pub in Surrey Hills last night that I was standing at the bar and it, it occurred to me that it had, hadn't been renovated in all the 30-plus years that I've been living in Sydney. And uh, I, thought I, I thought we'd have a little bit of a yak about old pubs towards the end of the show, Nick. Unrenovated pubs, yes, I'll take that on notice. I can think yeah. of five already. <laughs> highly recommend. Five, five you've visited in the last 24 hours. Unrenovated. <laughs> they, do they have to have clean glasses? Who's <laughs> that renovation? That's a, <laughs> He's washing the glasses. <laughs> some kind of. <laughs> what are you, some sort of inner city yuppie, are you? <laughs> Um, well, but let's go to our first grab um, because, of course, it's from your show, Nick, and you're, you, I've got to say, I've got to tell the listeners, you are absolutely on a roll at the moment with uh, stuff you are uncovering about renewable energy. It's, uh, we all knew that this was sort of madness, but uh, you seem to have just commandeered this, this uh, topic and uh, you're going around getting the most amazing footage. I mean, last week it was these giant windmills in a rainforest in Queensland. And now you've managed to get yourself some footage of just a single 75-metre blade stopping traffic on the Hume Highway and and having to, they have to widen roads to get this thing through towns. I'm, I'm pleased to say, Nick, that you actually have a new nickname in the office at, here at I'm ADH. I'm loving it. I'm loving yep, it. Yep, Nick Cater. Nick the Blade Runner Cater. <laughs> <laughs> but well, I'm just intrigued, Nick. How do you actually find out that these things have been dispatched and uh, where they are? Uh, well, I, I, the, the locals in Rye Park where it was heading to just ruin their village, um, they, they are they are told when they'd be arriving by the um, by the company, some sort of community relations thing, you know, to make sure that they're not, their dog doesn't end up underneath a truck or something. But uh, um, so I, I, I did my sleuthing and I heard that there was one on its way and um, they also knew the route. So I waited <laughs> at, at 5.30 a.m. in a, just off the Hume Highway near Yasrita Pass and then it passed. What a circus, Fred. It's massive... A convoy of vehicles fore and aft, including four police cars, uh, and this massive. Uh, it's basically a a, a B double with with the blade hanging off the back, which goes for another seventy five meters, and then at the very rear, you've got this sort of autonomous bogey that's re- remote controlled by the guy behind in a vehicle behind, and that can steer left and right. It's a most huge thing, and the Hume Highway is not a bad road, right? But you. You're not allowed to pass it. The police sit in the outside lanes. You don't try and squeeze by. Uh, so, so that's happened every night. It's been happening every night this week. That uh, is all the way from Newcastle, actually. Because it comes off the, 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 the ship at Newcastle from Denmark, loaded onto one of these uh, huge, massive trucks, and then taken down to overnight to Rye Park. And you can imagine how much traffic that's holding up, how much productivity 
Yeah. I mean, if you were all those of, all those cars idling and and idling, you know, carbon dioxide into the into the uh, atmosphere to save the planet. That's right. And if you, you know, if you go to your local supermarket and you find the the tomatoes are a bit old, well, that's why. You know, they've been <laughs> in a Woolworths truck stuck behind one of these for the last <laughs> week and a half. <laughs> I've got to, um, I've got to say, I, I mean, I have watched the footage, of course, and uh, I mean, it does look like Joe Biden's driving down the Hume Highway. There's so much, <laughs> there's so much protection for these things. It's a and highly also, skilled job, and I take my hat off to them. They've got the worst turning circle. They've got a worst turning circle than Fred Flintstone. <laughs> and they, they want to take us back to that level of technology as well. Yeah, so it comes down this narrow road from Burrower uh, and then turns sharp left into uh, Rye Park Road, but it can't do that sharp right. It can't just come up to a T-junction and turn right. So they had to build a huge, great extension road through a paddock Big in a big arc, so that this thing can go in, and it's there that I caught the video. It, uh, it's just you look at this thing and you think you what, <laughs> you what, and and it's a number of them, Fred. So eighty six turbines at this site, so times three. What's that? Two hundred and forty, two hundred and fifty eight blades, I think, and for one site. And, it, and Boeing says, of course, we need one turbine to be installed every eighteen hours, but from now till. Uh, the uh, the end of the decade. So that means we're going to have to have four of these on the road every night, four wow. blades going hither and thither. That's extraordinary. Isn't yeah. it? I um, mean, you do, just, just capturing one was dramatic enough, but to think that these things are just heading off in all directions or, you know, dozens of them in the same direction or one every night, I mean, it, it's such a massive operation and it's obviously using so much uh, fossil fuels and you can imagine something. you're making it in Denmark, for goodness yeah. sake. Well, good on the Danes. You know, yeah. I'd rather, if we're going to get them from anywhere, I'd rather have them there from, than China. But they put them on a ship somehow and get them here and it's just unbelievable. And then because all these, well, a lot of these turbines are at the top of really steep, often very ragged, rugged uh, country, countryside, so they have to manoeuvre up. And I'm told that in some sites they'll have two trucks, so they'll have... It'd be double hauled up the hill by two trucks. Oh, trucks. my goodness. Yeah. I've got to say, I've got to compliment you on the quality of the uh, cinematography, Nick. I mean, it, it looks like, I mean, if Four Corners was doing, <laughs> heaven forbid Four Corners would be interested in the dark side of renewable energy, but if they ever did, the, you know, to get the same quality footage, they would require a team of, you know, half a dozen people and, mm. uh, and someone running off to get the lattes. Mm. But um, you've well, done this all by yourself. It's it's incredibly impressive. I mean, the first scene is is you sort of in the dark waiting on the side <laughs> of the road for this <laughs> convoy to go past, and it's like, oh, they've just gone past, and I, you know, and off you go. <laughs> you, I mean, you're operating the camera and driving the car. I'm, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't incriminate you with uh, being a, a distracted driver, but um, you did the whole thing very well, mate. And the whole thing, or most of it, shot on iPhone. This is the brilliant thing about. Modern technology, iPhones. You just so you can you can download an app, which I do, and that can capture it in cinematic quality. It's unbelievable, and a lot of um, you know professional filmmakers use them now because they're yeah. very you know they're very easy to handle and very um, manoeuvrable. And and when you're interviewing somebody, you put one of these in front of them. It's not nearly as intimidating as having a you know ABC <laughs> crew of twenty. <laughs> Hanging yeah. over you. Well, we wouldn't be intimidated by that, let's be honest. Yeah. So, um, uh, but you set this very, you set this up extremely well, um, you know, in, in uh, uh, 
pretty much in the style of your uh, weekly column in The Australian, very informative um, and rationally and reasonably opinionated editorial about the folly of our energy policy. This is the opening of your show from Thursday night. Let's have a listen. Just because theoretically we have an unlimited supply of wind and solar doesn't mean that the supply of renewable energy is immune from the problems of economic, the economic problems of constraint, of scarcity. As the US economist Thomas Sowell once wrote, the first lesson in economics is scarcity. The first lesson in politics is to disregard the first law of economics. That's Chris Bowen for you. The political solution to the scarcity problem for politicians at least, is to rob Peter to pay Paul. In the case of renewables, that theft is committed against those who have other uses for the land, like farmers, native people or koalas. And on we go with our continuing theme of being environmentalists here at Parting Shots, Nick. Mm, we are very, very... Yes. But it, it, this is... It's a, Thomas Sowell makes a very good point here, you know, that, that, that uh, scarcity is the key thing that economics deals with right and, and every, they have scarce commodities but somehow you know chris bowen and and the renewable fundamentalists got in their head that because it's always the wind's always going to blow they think and the sun's always going to shine well endless supplies like limitless supplies but of course it is constrained by principally by two things one is capital they have to get the capital to pay for this but the second which is even more immediate is land you know even in a country as big as Australia, you eventually run out of space. And it's it it we do it's just like the farmers in the in the nineteenth century forever sort of pushing forward to new areas, thinking that you know, the frontier was endless and they pretty soon found that, you know, once you get close to Uden Daddy, you're stuffed. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's well, you know, it is a wide brown land and Bowen is, as you say, I think uh, calculating that Australians think that we could just blanket the country in solar panels and windmills and uh, we would be self-sufficient with energy. But uh, that's not the case. The other thing is that, you know, if, if you have to push these wind farms and solar farms further away, then you have to connect it with, you know, high-intensity high mm, uh, right. wires. And, and that doesn't come cheap. He's already, he's already committed to 10,000 kilometres of that stuff anyway, hasn't he? That's right. And I've noticed, I've, I've drawn another conclusion after visiting a lot of places where these things are blighting the village. Um, and that is there is an iron law here, uh, certainly everywhere I've been, that every if you want to create uh, d disharmony, if you want to split a rural community or any community, put in a wind farm. And in every case, you know, often very close, friendly communities have been split in two, into two camps, and that's those who've taken the money from the renewable energy company because they're having something on their land or something, and those who just have to put up with the, the inconvenience so they don't get any money. And, it's, and, and it, is, it is horrible to see that happening in towns, people no longer talking to one another because of this. Oh, yeah. And it's not just a one-off. Every place I've visited where one of these has gone, that is true, and that's it's just tragic, isn't That's it? That's frightening. Well, that, that it's it's a microcosm of what the voice is doing to the nation in general. But let's. I suppose that... be a unifying moment. No, hang on. <laughs> and Anthony Albanese told us the referendum will be a unifying moment. Are you, are you disputing that? <laughs> <laughs> well, as an F wit, I I, I I beg to differ. Now, um, but that does segue nicely into the next grab from your show, and this is an interview with John Peatfield from New England. He's one. He's in the camp. Uh, that hasn't taken the money, and uh, it's a new 
It's a new iteration of the old shut the gate campaign. Let's have a listen. The same standards don't apply, do they, when it comes to renewable energy? We, we don't... We don't, there doesn't appear to have been a study done. I mean, we have very limited resources and we have to extrapolate. But it, it, the New England Highway simply can't handle that sort of traffic. I think uh, you've got the figures there. I think 4,500 oversized, overweight uh, vehicles bringing the components for the uh, turbines up. Um, I mean, Musselbrook Council realised the problem. They've objected to one of the wind farms here, ju just one of them, because they realise that everything goes by Newcastle through Musselbrook and, and they're, they're going to have to heighten their overpass to get any blades through at all. But the government seems to be asleep at the wheel as far as, as, as the monster they've created. It's a, it's an it's an industrial revolution that's occurring, John, and it's affecting vast swathes of inland Australia, particularly up and down the Great Dividing Range, and nobody seems to be paying any attention whatsoever. I mean, do, do you feel abandoned? Do you feel ignored by your fellow Australians and by the government? We feel, we feel that the the bush has been shafted by Macquarie Street. Um, when, when this was designed, it, it, there was no regard for people or place or agriculture or environment. You know, they're destroying the environment to supposedly save the environment. If you, Australia's got something like 5% of arable land. Yeah, and, and that 5% of arable land is being overlaid uh, with um, or competed for with these uh, windmills and uh, solar farms. I should add that, that uh, John Peatfield is from New England, just north of Newcastle in New South Wales. And when he says shafted by Macquarie Street, he means, of course, shafted by the government right here in the city. But, uh, Nick, that's a really good example of the, uh, Thomas Sowell's concept of scarcity. That's what he's talking about. Yeah, it's about scarce resources that have alternative economic uses and you need... To have a trade-off, right? You? you have a trade-off. I mean, maybe that was more valuable to us as farming land. Maybe, uh, you know, some of the rainforest is more valuable as rainforest and not, you know, and not just some desert to put turbines in because, after all, rainforest does uh, do a very good job of absorbing carbon. Uh, or, you know, maybe we'd, we'd think the koalas should be able to breed undisturbed by this stuff and birds should be able to fly without being turned into, you know, minced parrot, <laughs> you know. So... It, it, we, but because it's a, it's a characteristic of a lot of the debates we have now, particularly the energy debate and the climate debate, that there is no compromise from the fanatics. It's all or nothing, and nothing works like that. You know, as Thomas Sowell says, there's no solutions, only trade-offs, but they refuse to accept that. Well, uh, I, you know, the language you used in that, Grab, I, I particularly liked that, Grab, because, you know, these are topics that uh, we just never thought we would be discussing in Australia, I mean, you said this is an industrial revolution. In fact, it's a de-industrial revolution. <laughs> and, and you know, when you asked him, do you feel abandoned by your fellow Australians? I mean, that's a, that's a heartbreaking thing to have to ask. I mean, what, if, if Australia stood for anything, it's the fact that we do stand together. You yeah. Know? It's, um, you know, but these are the, this is the, the, the sort of size of the changes that, that Australia is undergoing at the moment. And, uh 
it's sad to say that um, it's all at the behest of our uh, esteemed leaders. Yeah, and as I said in the show, I mean, they say, of course, that this wind farm at Rye Park, which is the biggest one that's so far on the being constructed in New South Wales, it will it will be enough electricity to power two two hundred and ten thousand homes. So okay, well, two of those that should do Canberra, right? So, <laughs> and you you might argue, I don't think I would, but you could conceivably argue that it's it's worth ripping the Yass Valley apart if that gives you constant and carbon-free electricity for Canberra. But, of course, that's bullshit. Yes. It does not, yeah. <laughs> as we Speaking know. Speaking as an F-wit, I agree. That yeah, is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's ab- absolutely not true. And, and, and it, in fact, it won't even provide reliable power for yes, because it doesn't reply, provide reliable power for anywhere. Well, you, you point out elsewhere in that, uh, in, in that show, in that interview, that New England was dubbed, was deemed... A uh, what is it? A renewable energy zone by Matt Keane when he says he's he, he's being screwed by Macquarie Street or shafted by Macquarie Street. That's what that, he means. That he, for Macquarie Street, read Matt Keane, a supposed liberal member of the Liberal Party. But that you know this this sort of arbitrary declaration that and that some area you know several hundred kilometers or five or six hours from Matt Keane's house in the leafy suburbs of Sydney mm. will be a renewable energy zone that's like, that's like um, London mayor um, uh, um, London mayor uh, Sadiq, Sadiq Khan, Sadiq Khan yeah. um, declaring parts of London a ultra low uh, emission zone you yeah. I mean, th- these are just th- th- these are sort of airy fairy concepts that these politicians um, come up with, and they think by imposing them they're doing us all a favour. When in fact it doesn't affect them, uh, and the people it does affect, it affects them negatively. It doesn't affect their house prices, it, uh, you know. But it doesn't. If you're in a renewable energy zone, you've got one of these things next to you. Damn right, it'll affect your house price. Yeah. You you take the hit. Yeah, and and you'd never consulted the 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 whole, you know. They they talk now about social license, which is basically anything they want it to be, right? Oh, you, social! I I can't stand that term. It's actually a euphemism for democracy. I mean, social license means people approve of what you do. I mean, if you if you want social license, you take it to an election. It's as simple as that. Um, I don't, you know, we we are constantly getting euphemisms like that um, imposed mm. on us when uh, yeah. all they're trying to say is, um, you know, we're pretending that we didn't uh, get, we, that, that we are going to get this social licence through means other than through votes and in ballot box. Well, shove it, mate, put it to a vote and we will decide, not you. Absolutely. But, well, as if that wasn't enough in your show, Nick, and uh, congratulations again on being leading the nation on uh, exposing the insanity of our... It's ne- not hard to lead the nation because nobody <laughs> else is doing this well, stuff. Well, that's right. right. It's just yes. unbelievable. Yeah, and I have to give a shout-out here to Damien Curie, actually, because, as I mentioned at the start of the show, um, the, the Senate inquiry uh, where Pfizer and uh, AstraZeneca, or no, Moderna, I, I, I should say, uh, executives were hauled over the coals by a few um, leading senators, including... Alex Antich and Jared uh, Rennick. Um, his show last night, we haven't got a grab from it, but his show covered this topic very well. And again, the mainstream media completely ignored it, which is uh, quite disturbing. But 
You've also covered, and this is quite amusing, you've covered very effectively in your show from Thursday night, The Voice, and this is a, a quite, a whole, quite a new angle, why, the, uh, why young people would vote for this thing in a landslide. Let's have a listen. I think the idea that we should cap rents is absolutely ludicrous. It's populism at its finest, which is all the Greens really are for Gen Z and millennials. Uh, and, and ultimately, it's all going to backfire because who is going to invest in property uh, and actually build the houses required to house the people that need houses if rents are being capped and they can't make any money from it? And furthermore, anybody who currently does have a property that they're renting out, won't they just take it off the rental market and use it as an Airbnb or just leave it vacant and get the capital gains. This solves absolutely nothing. It is just the epitome of short-sighted populism by the left that appeals to young people and they actually prey on young people's ignorance in this sense and lack of economic literacy because nobody thinks this is a good idea. Well, I'm going to pivot here and say that wasn't actually about the voice. It was about no, it was, it was. We had the conversation about the voice. We went on to that. Uh, so I, I thought, you know, we do. It's a bit. Of, we did a bit of an opinion poll on the voice. We decided on um, on the Green Party, and uh, you know, the, their target audience is uh, under 35s, particularly under 35 women who've been to university. So. We did an opinion poll of that. We, that we being the Menzies Research Centre? No, the Battleground. Oh, ADH. Battleground. Oh, okay, we did an yes. opinion poll and we found that 100% of under 35 women think capping rents is absolutely batshit balmy. <laughs> and 100% uh, of them also think that the Greens are, are, are populist leftist lunatics who prey on young people's ignorance of economics. And this is a sample of how many? One. <laughs> and, and you just heard her. Fre <laughs> the great Freya Leach, uh, she's... Um, head of the uh, youth uh, policy um, department at Menzies Research Centre. And as you can hear, uh, she is uh, remarkably articulate and clear-headed about this. So great hope, I think. I think there, and there, are, there are a lot of people around like that. We tend to sort of, you know, generalise about the, the, the mashed avocado munching, you know, whinging people who don't want to pay rent. But... Uh, of course, in, in amongst that cohort are very smart, very good, principled young people. The uh, turning housing into a political issue is probably one of the most disturbing and deliberate political phenomena of recent years, I'd suggest. Australia has always been, I mean, talk about we have plenty of, you know, unlimited space in Australia. We don't have it for farming, we don't have it for wind farms, and we don't have it for solar panels, but we do have it for housing because, well, in the country I grew up in, we were a very can-do country. I, you know, when I was 17, my dad built a tavern on the edge of the suburbs of Perth in a new suburb. And uh, I was uh, I was employed on the building site to help build some of it. It's still there. It's one of the best pubs in, in, uh, in Perth. Is it can... renovated? <laughs> it's... <laughs> Well, I, I confess it has been renovated uh, recently, but uh, shout out to all. Cannot be one of the great pubs. A <laughs> <laughs> couple of good pool tables and plenty of plenty of TV screens showing all the AFL action. Shout out to the Craigie Tavern in the northern <laughs> beaches of Perth. But uh, I, I, I can recall working on that building site as a kid and being surrounded by just dirt. There was nothing there. And now you look at it and it's all rooftops, it's all settled, it's all families and it's a it's a perfectly you know wonderful place to you know bring up kids and live and work and so on and that's what Australia represented 
you know, particularly then, back in the 70s and 80s, we just wanted to go out and build stuff. And mm. we were good at it. The government had absolutely nothing to do with it. All the government had to do was clear the land, build the roads, put in the sewage and water and electricity and just leave, get the hell out of the way and let the builders and the customers find the balance. And now we have the federal government involved intimately in uh, in supposedly creating what they call affordable housing or build for rent, which is even more sinister. And it, you know they they are preying on the on the uh, the the disappointment and the disillusionment of young people that feel they will probably never own a house in this country, and they probably won't. And so the government is 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 promising what they call affordable housing, and they are essentially, you know, prison cell blocks. And now, I mean, someone like Freya comes along and says, you know, these these uh, policies are, uh, um, you know, exploiting young people. And she's right. I hope young people feel the anger that they are being cheated uh, of an opportunity that all previous generations, assert, well, certainly since Menzies, because he was the one who created yeah. the the sort of home ownership um, uh, idea, I hope that they they do start feeling um, anger about it because the Greens and Labor are not the answer. A, a freeze on rent is not the answer. That's a band-aid over a over a, um, a, a you know a gash the size of you know that runs up the the whole side of your leg. You know mm. that mm. that is not a mm. solution. I mean, rent rent caps are the most probably the most studied and analysed area of economic policy in history and every report comes back and says it's a bad idea just for all the reasons Freya listed and more. But, you know, I don't think I don't think we should let Labor get away with this because they are presiding over the largest immigration by far that we've ever seen in this country. Um, I, I did look at the numbers. I think it's around about 300,000 this year, and let's say that 100,000 of those go to Melbourne, 100,000 to Sydney, which is not a, it's probably a, it might even be more than that because most where most of them go, 100,000 people, say one home for every 2.5 people, because that's the normal ratio. What does that work out? Um, 50, uh, 40,000 homes. Yeah. So immediately, 40,000 homes have gone because migrants need to live somewhere. And we don't we don't build that many homes every year in those cities. So yeah, but my argument is that you know if the government got out of the way and we were allowed to clear land and and build suburbs as we used to do, we could do that. Australia used to be that have have that can, can do, do uh, attitude, but not and anymore. Yeah, of course, and just it's, it is about getting out of the way and getting rid of regulations and allowing people to you know because if you leave it to entrepreneurial individuals, they'll find a way of getting round the shortage exactly. of land. Exactly, yep, yep. and they will find the market and yeah. the market will rise to the occasion and, and you know, a, 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 a suitable price will be found and, you know, people mm. will, will wind up owning the their own homes. Yeah, the price goes up, a price signal, isn't it? A price goes up, it's, it's not greed, as the Greens say. You know, it's not avarice by landlords who just want too much. It's, it's a reflect, it's a signal that somebody's got to build some more houses. That's exactly. That's and, right. And that's yep. what would normally happen. Yeah. I mean, it's just the same as 
if the petrol price goes up, it used to be a signal for people to go out and drill for oil. This is another example of of, um, of politicians ignoring the first rule of economics. Exactly. Um, the, the, speaking of in, immigration, I had uh, opposition immigration spokesman on my show, Dan Tian, on my show on Monday night, and he pointed out that uh, there have been, in the past few months, 66,000 new uh, people granted a COVID visa. Now, the COVID visa was introduced by Dan Tian's government previous to the you know last change of government in May last year under Scott Morrison. When the when the COVID borders when the low, when the border lockdown happened, there were people living in Australia who who weren't citizens and they needed to stay and they needed to work because they weren't eligible for um, JobKeeper. So they brought in what they called a COVID visa. And, you know, some tens of thousands of people were granted this, immigrants were granted this visa um, under those extenuating circumstances. COVID doesn't exist anymore as a threat. I'd argue it never did in the first place, but that's another story. And, of course, the borders, <coughs> excuse me, the borders have opened and labour has increased the number of people granted COVID visas. I mean, it's insane. I mean, if, if Freya is angry, Freya and her her uh, peers are angry, that's what they should be angry about. Of course, we'll be accused of being racist again because we don't, well, I'm we just don't an want to so. <laughs> yeah. I'm just an F-wit. Well, they should do, Freddie's. I mean, yeah, sure. I mean, I know somebody in that category. He's a very good um, chap, friend of a friend who's, you know, Pommy's over here. He's a very good carpenter, right, with people we need. But... Having got through that period, it, okay, well, they should just make a route, have put up a path for them to apply for full, you know, for a, a working category of visa or full-time residency, whatever it is, based on their individual qualifications, not based on the fact well, they just happened to be here when the COVID panic broke Exactly, out. <laughs> or they came here as students. I mean, that this is the scam. They come here as students and uh, they're meant to stay for three years, but some some actually claim asylum of all things and then you know some you know get married or have children and then they they work their way through the system mm. and it can take up to eight years the more people who get into the system the more clogged it gets and so the more money taxpayers like you and i have to pay to clear this backlog of applications and there are as as is happening all over western liberal democracies these days there's this small industry of lawyers who specialise in this stuff and are making an absolute fortune. I said to Dan Tian on my show the other night, look, you know, we're bringing all these people in as students and what we really should be doing is bringing in, as you say, the skilled people that we need rather than students. And just to, as, a, you know, as an amusing observation, I said, I think we've, I think we've already got enough Uber drivers and 7-Eleven shop assistants. Because mm. that's what we seem to be bringing in. Yeah, no. I mean, if you look at um, you know migrants, cohorts of migrants, the student migrant group are the the least employed, right? I mean, the most mostly they find work, but they are the least employed. So mm. it says something about their education as well, doesn't it? But <laughs> that's right. No, well, I think make... the whole thing's bad policy. Yeah. And, and you're right; they they drag the system out because we have a rule which says. You know, you lodge your appeal with the Ministry of Appeal Tribunal. That will probably take about a year and a half to go through because they've got to have a huge backlash. And you can work in the meantime. So yeah. people deliberately do that with no ultimate hope of getting 
full-time residency, but if it gives them another 18 months making a few bob driving driving Uber and painting nails, then that's what they'll do, you know. Yeah, yeah, and they don't they, they don't become part of the Australian community or the Australian family. It's not... Anyway, that's enough about immigration. Let's talk about the fundamental difference between us conservatives and leftists. This, uh, I wasn't expecting this to, uh, to be a, a sort of a reflection of what uh, our, our, the, the dear um, journalist Mike Carlton said about us, but this is from my show on Monday night. Let's have a listen. As you know, the left has made victimhood status the most desirable thing in the world right now. And they have coincidentally commandeered it all for themselves. If you're gay, dark-skinned or female, there are entire academic faculties and government departments dedicated to helping you realise how downtrodden you are by the racist heterosexual patriarchy. But people who subscribe to this rubbish are actually the lucky ones. Virtually all of the media, academia and government support their struggle to raise themselves out of this swamp of bigotry and succeed in life against overwhelming odds. But that's nothing compared to what people like you and I have to go through. We have to get out of bed every day knowing that we will be bombarded by the hallucinatory illusions of the victimhood industrial complex, telling us audacious falsehoods that a blind man could see are untrue. Australia was brutally invaded rather than peacefully settled? Wrong. White Australians committed genocide on their Aboriginal brothers and sisters? Wrong again. Aboriginal people need a separate voice to Parliament because they have different needs to other human beings. Wrong. Women are paid less than men. Wrong. Women can have a penis. Wrong. Masculinity is toxic. Wrong. Carbon dioxide in the Earth's atmosphere is altering the weather. Wrong. The planet is boiling. The polar ice caps are melting. The oceans are rising. All wrong. Diversity is strength. Wrong, it's actually a weakness and probably a fatal one. COVID is a lethal virus that requires entire populations to stay indoors. Wrong, mRNA vaccines are not, in, not only better than natural immunity, they are also safe and effective. Nah, wrong. And the best one of all, no matter which of these erroneous assertions you dare to question, if you do, you are, of course, racist. It all makes so much sense to leftists. I could go on, but you get my point. Having to put up with this rubbish makes us the real victims here. But we don't claim it because we are too busy paying off our homes, raising our kids, and generally just happily getting on with life. Well, that makes me a racist effort, doesn't it, Nick? I think so, Fred. It makes you, yeah. I mean, but it is about you. You, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, you know, I think the, diff, the the principal difference between people who we we think of as conservatives and those we think of as lefties is that the conservatives tend, tend to have one foot on the ground at least, if not yeah. two. You know, they yeah. they're not off on wild flights of fantasy and theoretical arguments. They've actually got a foot in the real world, and, and they can see that. You know, just because you happen to be Aboriginal doesn't destine you to fail. I meet plenty of uh, 
Aboriginal people who are very successful. You know, but, but it's not about it's about real world experience, and it's it's always the way. You know, they they put these categories of victims out there, and it's nonsense, isn't it? It's all arbitrary. Do you remember they said? When, when they did the Gonski school funding scheme, they looked at all these reasons why a school might be disadvantaged. And one of them was if they've got a large number of pupils who speak uh, English as a, another language other than English at home. And that's to them, is a disadvantage. But all the academic studies show that kids who speak another language at home and, and learn English uh, in their childhood when they come here are the most uh, successfully achieving students there are. Because you imagine if they have to do a lot of mental gymnastics in early age that you and I were spared, you know, when you and I were out sort of, you know, letting off uh, fireworks or in people's <laughs> letterboxes, they were trying to grasp the English language and, and done, you know, go on to become very successful. Well, yeah, uh, good point. And, and, but the main point I was trying to make with that was that, you know, we, we have to sort of step back and take stock of the fact that we are constantly bom- bombarded with untruths. And, you know, I mean, we are facing the very distinct possibility that our federal government will soon be policing what is true and what is not on social media. And that was just a casual list yeah. off the top of my head. But that's right. They're, they're going to be policing truths and they're the ones that are very often full of the most exactly. grievous misinformation. Yeah. I got a lot of good feedback on that little spray, so I thought I'd share it again on the podcast. So, uh, yeah. But- Have you got time for me to give you one bit of misinformation from Joe Biden? Oh, please. He said yes. recently, because he's very concerned about hot weather in America. So he said uh, that, uh, uh, I'll call up the numbers as I, I speak. He, he said that, uh, that the biggest uh, cause of death due to climate is heat. 600 people die every year, apparently, from heat related things in America. Well, number one, that's not true, right? You and I know, and the stats buried out that it's about three or four times that number of people die from cold. Yep. But even if we said that was a 600, is that a cause for alarm? I mean, it's a piddling figure in a country of 330 million yeah. people, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, you, you look at the figures. I, I don't such, know. Such, such easy figures to, uh, to fudge as well as they did They're during right. COVID. So, 700,000 people die each year from heart disease, 600,000 from cancer, and 600 from, <laughs> like, it's piddly. And and it's a country where 700 people are killed on the road accidents every week, in oh. road accidents every week. So, but this, so it's not a big deal, Joe. Yes. And and if I bet if you looked into it, it would be the same as COVID. The people you would expect to be more likely to die from heat stroke are the elderly You've or the infirm. A- You've got to wonder who's 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 writing his scripts these days. There was a really good piece in uh, American Spectator this week, speculating about uh, the fact that, or or the the idea that um, Barack Obama is actually pulling the strings. Barack Obama has a house in one of the leafy suburbs in Washington, and he spends a lot of time there. And uh, lately, uh, someone from Compact Magazine reported that. A lot of senior White House staff are seen coming and going from Obama's place. And there is evidence that uh, that Biden, see, you know, Biden was never that politically correct, you know, like sort of gay rights and transgender and all that sort of stuff. That wasn't his thing, but it is now. And so this this piece in uh, in The Spectator was saying, well, 
they're kind of that, that's got Obama's fingerprints all over it. And mm-hmm. uh, when you think about, it, I mean, the Iran deal, the Iran deal is Obama's ba- Obama's baby. I mean, why would Biden care about the the, the Iran deal? So yeah. yeah, it's very interesting. It's one to watch. I think. It, I think Biden is is Barack Obama's puppet. I, I yes. How leak? How Bill Leak would have dealt with that? Oh. You know, he would have had. <laughs> Barack That's Obama's not... hand <laughs> up Biden's backside <laughs> and mouthing oh. the words. <laughs> and, and sniffing his hair while he's doing it. <laughs> now, speaking of Bill Leake, I mean, we do mention him occasionally and we, li- and we miss him dearly. He was a great man. Um, I, had a, I had a beer with his son, Jasper, last night, who is now working at The Australian. Uh, Jasper's a musician and he's working as a sound technician on in their podcast department, and we had a beer at the Shakespeare Hotel in Surrey Hills. Now, this is uh, this is not necessarily about the Leak family. It's about the fact that I was ordering a beer at the bar, and I was thinking, you know, it's been seven years since Bill died, and I, I was leaning against the bar, and I, was, I looked around me, and I thought, this pub has never been renovated. I've been in I've been in Sydney since 1992, and I I, I used to drink there regularly when I worked at. News Corp, and uh, and I looked around. I mean, the, you know, the carpet smells the same. They might have shampooed mm. it once or twice. But I was looking around going, well, you know, Bill leaned against this bar seven years ago, and and it, it it's so charming. The place was packed. You know, the, the more renovated pubs don't seem to get as much of a clientele. Mind you, they're only charging six bucks for a schooner at the, at the Shaky, so oh. that might have something to do with it. But... Um, I just thought, you know, unrenovated pubs, uh, they are a, a sort of unappreciated um, jewel in Australian culture. And uh, you travel around Australia a lot, especially in country areas. You got any favourites, Nick? Well, the Imperial, the Imperial Hotel in Ravensthorpe will forever be one of my favourites. I stayed there for a fortnight um, when I was writing my book. And it's uh, it's an old gold mining town, Ravensthorpe. It's, it's pretty much a ghost town. Uh, but the hotel is standing and it's got those swing doors, you know. And you've got oh, you're kidding. <laughs> and, uh, and it's completely unrenovated and haunted. And I turned up and um, the landlady said to me, I, I said, I'd like to stay. She said, oh, yes, we've got a room. She said, do you want a key? <laughs> and I thought for a moment. Is that I an thought, optional extra? Yeah, I thought I'd sound a bit sort of poncy to say yes. <laughs> So I didn't take a key. I just got you stay there for. But that's a one of my favourite unrenovated pubs. Uh, uh, what else do we like? Is that one? Well, there's one. I've I've got one. I was um, I went uh, I went travelling. I had a little holiday over the other side of the uh, Blue Mountains over Christmas, and uh, while we were cruising around, we popped into a little town called Safala. Um, just uh, just the other side of uh, of the Blue Mountains, and it's it's almost unchanged since about 1940. This place, yeah. and it w- they used it as a set for the um, for the film Sirens, the movie about uh, Norman Lindsay that came out in the 90s, oh, yeah. starring uh, Elle McPherson and Kate Fisher and Hugh Grant. And so, the pub, the Royal Hotel in Safala. Uh, is is like a a sort of um, it's like a museum of the town. You know anything that's happened in the town. There's a photo of it up on the wall, and the place is creaky and old and just full of charm. And of course, never been renovated. But you know, you're sitting there in this in the middle of nowhere. I mean, Safala is a hard place to get to. It's there's no sort of main highway leading to it. 
And, uh, you know, you're sitting there in this pub and there's all these photos of Hugh Grant walking past the door where, you you know, you've just walked in. So, yeah, big shout out to uh, to anyone at the Safala, the Royal Hotel in Safala having a... Uh, Having a twoies at the front bar there, I'll um, it, I, I highly recommend it. A great place. And I'll put in a plug for the Luca Hotel, which is up there on the New South Wales North Coast, just um, on the the other side of the Clarence River to Yamba. I mean, Yamba's quite popular. Luca's um, not many people know Luca. It's good surfing beach there. Yes, and Gowrie. Yeah. But the, the Luca Hotel, you turn up and you think it's just a derelict shed. It's just a long corrugated iron building that looks like it's falling down until you hear the noise coming from an inn and it's just <laughs> packed every day with locals does the most fantastic seafood and just the most caught from right out the front in fact probably yeah, indeed yeah. indeed there's a fishing little fishing harbor there so the aluka hotel is always one of my favorites i agree with i, I agree with the shaky down in Surrey yeah. hills and that is that fish shop still open across the no road? it's more closed fish. more fish oh, yeah I walked past excellent. it last night that was open when i came to sydney too over yeah. 30 years ago so you know it's uh it, it was a shame to see that close because it was that was an institution in itself but yeah. Uh, yeah. but the shaky that that'll be there forever but you know any reader any listeners Got their favourite pubs. Send us in some photos. Our uh, our our um, email addresses are on our website, and uh, um, yeah, we'll give you a shout out on the next uh, on the next episode. The country's full of it, isn't it? And most most towns have got a pub, and, and oh, almost always Penong. they're good. Penong, Penong, yes, on the uh, on the air highway, halfway across. Uh, last vestige of civilization before you get to Perth. <laughs> Oh, no, no, that'll be, that'd be rising on half of WA, but it, yeah. before you get to the Nullarbor, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and, uh, and of course, um, you know, the, ter- the turn-off for, the, uh, for what used to be the world-famous break of uh, Cactus, one of, uh, back in the day, was one of the best waves in Australia, not so much anymore, but, uh, yeah, crazy place, Penong. I spent a, a few very weird nights there with the local surfing crew back in the 90s, but... Uh, uh, those were the days. Mm. Anyway, thanks again, Nick. Uh, thanks, Fred. Always a it's pleasure. Always, fun. always a pleasure wrapping up the week with you. And thanks for listening. Uh, this is Fred Paul and Nick Cater at ADH TV uh, wrapping up parting shots for another week. Thanks for listening.